Hi, everybody, and welcome back to yet another cracking installment of the Matt Brown Show. This is the Built in Texas series, where I'm connecting you to incredible founders, visionaries, changing the world as we know it. With me on the line is the founder and CEO of Applied Digital. Uh, his name is Wes Cummins. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Matt. Thanks for having me. The privilege is all mine. Uh, so, Wes, um, I've had the opportunity to get to know you, but many of our viewers and listeners around the world maybe haven't heard about you. <laughs> it's quite a big deal in your space, so I'm curious to get you to paint a picture for our audience around the world about a bit about your background and the origin story to Applied Digital. Sure. I'm happy to spend that time. So just a little of my background. I've been an investor in the technology space for over 20 years, uh, a lot of hard tech and some software, but it was hard tech is, you know, semiconductors, it's uh, networking hardware, it's optical equipment. And then everyone knows a lot of the software, especially consumer facing software and, and data services, you know, whether it's social media or streaming. So I've been in that space and have invested in small companies that have, you know, some have stayed small companies, some have grown up into much, much larger companies gone public. Um, and, and some are some of the largest cap companies out there. So I've spent a lot of time around that. I know a lot about, you know, growing companies and investing in the tech space. And then uh, about two years ago, uh, I was spending a lot of time in, in the blockchain and crypto space and had an idea about a company. Uh, and then, uh, you know, as, as I formulated this idea, I went out to look for partners. And in, in early 21, so just a little less than two years ago, I landed uh, a, a call with who is now my co-founder, uh, Jason Zhang, and, and we just kind of had that aha moment, and and you know, and that's where the company started. We went out uh, to raise funds for the company, uh, and we you know we put our pitch together, the whole thesis of the business, and we went to raise funds. We were trying to raise five million dollars. Uh, we had two days of meetings and calls with institutional investors. We had demand for thirty five million dollars uh, of investment. We we ended up taking uh, sixteen and a half. And the company was born. And the company originally was much more focused on, you know, GPU, what was at the time mining uh, and processing. And we had uh, partnered with one of the largest companies that were actually in China. There was the largest Ethereum mining pool at the time, uh, a company called uh, SparkPool. And off, off we went. We, you know, the whole goal was we could scale up and be the largest in this space in a very short period of time because the partners we had and kind of the infrastructure we had put, put in place well, then lo and behold, you know, the, come May of 21, uh, China cracks down on mining in uh, China. So the, the government cracked down on mining in China. And so it kind of threw our business model into a little bit of disarray. But it, it actually opened up, you know, what would become the large opportunity for us. And so we we changed our business because our customers came to us and asked us if we could build effectively data centers in the U.S., host the equipment that does, you know, GPU mining. So for Ethereum, but, but really for Bitcoin at that point. So the strategy shifted from being, you know, someone who operates equipment and mines ourselves and purchases the equipment to someone who builds what I, what I term now next generation data centers and build those and host everybody else. Uh, we started down that path in June of 21. Uh, we ended up landing the, really what I would call the, you know, the largest player in the space in, in Bitmain, which sells, you know, about 70% of the, of the servers that are used for the Bitcoin network. So they're really kind of the, the intel of, of that space. And we ended up <clears throat> getting them to come in and invest in a round to build our first data center. And they led that round. Uh, and then later we expanded into a bigger joint venture partnership with them, which was really 
the reason that happened is we, you know, we put together a really good team uh, of people who knew what they were doing, which the pool of people who knew what they were doing in the U.S. for this particular space was extraordinarily shallow. So you know, less than 5% of the, of the mining was going on in the United States. Put together a great team. We broke ground in September of that year. So it's September of 21. And our first data center opened in January of 22. So in, in, in about four months, uh, we built eight buildings. Uh, we put a bunch of electrical gear in place. Uh, we got all the permits, all the approvals, as you can imagine, are significant given the amount of electricity we were using. Uh, and, and we opened. So we were one of the few in the space that really kind of did exactly what we thought we could do. Uh, and it turns out we have a really efficient team of building that. So we ended up in a, in a joint venture partner with Bitmain. Uh, we listed the NASDAQ in April of this year. So in April of 22, I think we're one of two or three tech IPOs effectively for the year. So um, the, the timing was good. It was, it was a heavy lift, but we got that done. And then <clears throat> we've just expanded that business. So we went from one data center uh, to now, now we have three sites. Uh, two of those are not quite online, but they'll come online in the next few months. And so um, we, we've taken it from there to now as we, we, you know, changed the name recently of the company and we're expanding from, you know, just blockchain and crypto into general high performance computing. And I could talk about why that is and, and kind of what we see as our competitive advantage, but that's the origin story. And it's been, it's been, uh, really fast. And I, I think we've, you know, the team and I've done a really good job kind of managing the, the really rapid pace of growth. Um, so Wes, thanks for all the context and congratulations on on all the success you've achieved in what is clearly a really short period of time. Uh, but I'd love to, I mean, I have to ask you, because uh, you obviously you were born in the blockchain space and I understand where you guys are going. We'll get into the data center space in, in a moment. Um, we, there's the crashes, you know, everyone's talking about it, FTX, et cetera. Um, what are you seeing as a kind of a high level consequence of the current uh, crypto uh, market at the moment being where it is with FTX, a lot of investors pulling the yep. money out. This affects everybody from miners to speculators and so on and so forth. So how bad is this thing? Um, when, what do we need to look out for? So, so I think it's, you know, it's, it's caused a lot of issues very short term. Um, and we'll see how it plays out over the medium and long term. So I'll give you my opinion around that. But you you have two pieces of this the way I view it. So you have kind of the, the consumer fallout, right? The people who are losing their money at FTX or are losing money and tokens going down. Uh, and then you have the company fallout, which is you, one of the biggest fallouts is the, the capital markets are effectively completely closed to companies in this space. You know, the capital markets are difficult everywhere, but but extremely difficult in this space. So when you go from where we were at this this time last year, capital markets were wide open for especially for this space. It was as hot as could be. This is kind of right when you know uh, Bitcoin was hitting close to seventy thousand and hit sixty nine thousand. There was a lot of money rushing in. A lot of companies got funded. Um, and, and so that's the complete 180 degree opposite of where it was. So you have really, you know, those are from my perspective, two of the biggest consequences. Now, what, what happens with FTX and and the contagion effect, um, that's yet to be seen. You know, frankly, I think it's been a lot better than people thought. There's, there's a couple of other companies that are, you know, making news right now that are having trouble filling kind of holes in their balance sheet. So I want to separate that there's a couple of different layers here where you're dealing with FTX and some of these others, you know, Binance you hear about and a lot of others, which are exchanges and exchanges are effectively brokerages, right? And so this is 
this is more akin to what happened in 2008 when you had banks fail. And so you're having institutions inside of the space fail. Generally, you know, for whatever reason, took on too much leverage. Uh, you know, FTX will, will let that stand on its own. I mean, you can read enough news articles. I don't have to say what's going on there, but it's looking pretty obvious as to what's went on there. Um, where, where customer funds were commingled and, you know, maybe spent on a lot of things they shouldn't have been spent on. Um, and, and you might have some others that just have kind of leverage issues or liquidity issues because, you know, there's, there's different ways that things are locked up in this space, you know, on chain for yield. And then people try to take their, their tokens out and maybe they can't be returned as fast as, as maybe they thought they could. So you could have those issues. That's going to be a confidence issue from, you know, really a consumer perspective. And also from an institutional investor perspective a little bit. So that's that's the institutions. And then you have the currency underlying that. And, and the discussion I've had with a lot of people is, you know, 2008 happened. You panicked about the banks. <clears throat> you panicked about other, you know, insurance institutions, any financial institutions at the time. But you didn't panic about the dollar itself. And so you need to separate those institutions from, you know, Bitcoin effectively or Ethereum uh, I think that one of the benefits, medium and long term, that come out of this is maybe we can cull out a lot of, you know, the much more kind of, let's call it sketchy or flimsy tokens and projects that are out there that are really designed to kind of, you know, transfer, you know, people's money from one pocket to another. Uh, and if you can remove a lot of those, I think longer term, that's much better for specifically Bitcoin, right? Bitcoin doesn't have an institution that stands behind it. You know, we don't have to go into, you know, why I think that's that's the best token out of all, you know, store value. Uh, people can have their own opinion on that. But you, I, I just want to separate the institutions versus the currency effectively. And the positive could be that you get rid of, you know, if you go on, Matt, on, on like coinmarketcap.com, right, you'll see something like seven plus thousand publicly traded tokens, almost 8,000 publicly traded tokens. You know, I think for reference, there's like 3,500 publicly traded stocks of, of real companies in America, right? There's, it's so diluted and it's such kind of a mess out there. And that's just a function of how much of the excess was able to go on. And then we'll step down to the mining space. So the miners themselves, you know, they could get caught up. And I haven't really seen any of them get caught up. And like if they were holding their tokens at FTX or another brokerage. So it doesn't appear that that was the case. That's how they could get harmed from that. The, the real harm to the miners is the, just the price of, of Bitcoin going down because of, as a result of this. And so um, when you're running the network, because the miners, I'm, I'm not a big fan of that term, honestly, but it's, you know, what it really means is it's the people who operate the Bitcoin network, right? They, mm-hmm. they run the transactions of the network. They have the computing power of the network. And the way they get paid for, for participating and running, buying that hardware, running it is in, in Bitcoin from the network itself, right? And so... Those guys have been harmed because Bitcoin goes down. Uh, Why does Bitcoin go down when all this happens? Well, you lose some confidence. Also, for a lot of these guys, Bitcoin is the ultimate collateral. And so it gets liquidated in the market to to pay liabilities. And so when you when you have big liquidations, you're going to see pricing pressure. So from a minor perspective, they get hurt from that. They haven't gotten hurt by being caught up with any so far with any of the institutions that, that have failed. Um, but, but it does make it painful and less economical for the miners. And you're seeing some miners really struggle. A lot of those reasons that they're really struggling is because of how they capitalized themselves in the, you know, kind of the heyday of last year, there was so much capital availability that they could go out and take the the thing that really got people in trouble is they took really fast amortizing loans specifically on the, on the servers, on the miners themselves. 
uh, on the hardware. And those loans made a lot of sense when Bitcoin was above 50,000 and Bitcoin 16,000. Those loans are really hard to pay back. Um, so you've had uh, they've had a bit of a struggle. So you're seeing some of the miners have a problem there. Uh, for, for us, so we don't mine ourselves. We build the data centers and we operate. We have a fixed rate contract with our customer and then a, a contract on the other side for the, for the power. And we do all the operations of white glove service in the middle for the data center, just like a, a traditional data center would. Um, and, and so we're, we're not, we don't have the day-to-day fluctuation in, in our business. We're not as impacted, but at the end of the day, our, our customers need to be successful for us to be successful too in the long term. Um, and, and so that can be painful for the time being, but you know, Matt, I've seen this as an investor. So let me step back in the investor side. I've seen this in other industries multiple times in my career. And so in these industries, you know, everyone gets really excited about a new space, massive amounts of capital flow in, a ton of projects that shouldn't be funded, get funded. And then you have kind of a shakeout as everything becomes clear, like what shouldn't be or should be funded. And you have, so the way I always term is you have a huge party, right? When capital's flowing in and then you pay for it with the hangover. And we're, we're in the hangover right now. Does the hangover get worse? Are we, you know, is it peaked? Are we getting a little bit better? That's yet to be seen. But in the hangover phase, you know, you generally have a lot of consolidation. Some people go out of business. Then you'll end up with a few players that come out very strong from that. You know, and, and for for people who are watching, probably some of the, the one of the best examples is the, the early 2000s tech crash. You know, you, you had a ton of companies go away. You don't even remember the name of a lot of these companies. But I was involved in, in tech investing at the time. It was actually my first few years. So I remember it vividly. But you had some of the biggest companies in the world come out of that. Um, and so, you know, that, that does happen more recently, I've seen it in, uh, the cannabis space. So that was a ton of capital flowed in, in like 2018, a ton of companies went public, you know, you had overfunding, bad business models, and you've had a, a long shake out there. So I think we're in that hangover phase from the minor perspective and, and a lot of other things, you know, quite frankly. Um, but, but I think at the end you'll, you know, you have a shakeout and a few guys come out strong. Yeah, I think uh, the best time to start a business is in a recession because then, you know, if you come out the other side, when the market turns and the tide starts to rise, then you go along with that. So so, um, let's talk a bit more about uh, Applied Digital for a moment. So um, I understand that the the genesis of this whole thing. So, you know, from Bitcoin mining infrastructure around that, and now you kind of pivoted to data centers and so forth. Um, What is the... Uh, when you talk about this idea of the next gen data center, what is that? What does that actually mean? Sure. Um, and what is the the problem that uh, you guys are solving? Stay with us. We'll be right back. Hey there. I know being an entrepreneur can be a very lonely experience. You sometimes get stuck, don't you? Well, if you're like me, being stuck sucks. But what if you could access the minds of over 850 CEOs who have built companies generating billions of dollars in revenue and access all of that knowledge in a fraction of a second? Well, the good news is you can literally do that today. What my team have built is Matt Brown AI. It is trained on all the interviews, over 850 of them that I've done to date. All my books, 
books, all the knowledge capital that has been generated over the last 10 years right here on the Matt Brown Show. And you can get access to all of that right now for free. So how do you get access to this? Well, head on over to mattbrownshow.com and at the top you'll see community. Hit that link, sign up, it's absolutely free and you'll be given instant access to Matt Brown AI and a community of over 100,000 subscribers. Sure. So that, that's a great question. The, when I think about data centers, so when I think about digital infrastructure, digital infrastructure has been a great investment asset class for you know 40 plus years. And so when you think about digital infrastructure, three things come to mind for me. It, it's uh, data centers, fiber, and cell towers, right? And you know, they, 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 in a lot of ways, when you talk about digital infrastructure, it's treated as property. And so all the you know, for the most part, almost all the data center capacity that's been built out for the last, let's call it 20 years, has been all about high-speed interconnect. And so it's all about high-speed communications. Uh, and why is that? Well, we all know what the biggest apps have been, you know, over the past 20 years, and you've seen it, video streaming is the biggest, right? And so you need ultra-low latency, high-speed communications. Uh, and then you're seeing, you know, Web 2.0, which is Facebook, you know, Instagram, now you have TikTok. That's all still similar. It's the way we consume content. And so the vast majority of capacity has been built out. And so like if I look out my, my office window here in Dallas, you know, I see a, a data center about a half a mile away and it's built here in an urban area, generally built on top of the interconnect of multiple fiber networks where they, the, or the, the nexus of uh, uh, several fiber networks where they do the interconnection. And, you know, we went from, you know, Matt, when, when I was, much younger than the internet was starting and it was brand new. And, and uh, you know, if I wanted to, and it was, it was great. It was really cool. But if I wanted to watch a video on the internet, I would sit in front of my computer, I'd find the video I wanted, I would click on it. And then I would like, go make myself something to eat, right? Because it's going to take 20 minutes or, or 30 minutes of buffering before the video even started. And, and so we've gone from there to like people get upset if Netflix takes five seconds to boot their, their, their streaming up, right? Because we're just, that's what we're used to. And that's what all of that build out has been. And so those data centers to me, I was always call them, you know, like uh, kind of a Swiss army knife data center. So they, they are built for that, but they use everything else inside. So, you know, if you're doing any kind of big compute or you're doing, you know, it, it hosts a real time environment for a lot of people's business apps. Like most people will run you know, virtual in the cloud on their business apps now. You don't have server closets anymore. So that's what all that data center capacity was built for. So I think that was the last 20 years. Are we still going to do that? Absolutely. But a huge amount of capacity was built for that. And, you know, I don't know that you're reaching saturation on those. But but when I look to the next 20 years, I think you're much more focused and we're starting to see these applications show up in the already large markets. But like um, artificial intelligence, machine learning, um, you know, uh, DNA sequencing, protein sequencing, drug discovery, all of these things, these are different. They require huge amounts of computing power rather than ultra-fast communications, right? And so it's just that's where I think the next 20 years is. So that's, you know, autonomous driving, that's factory automation, that's, you know, I guess getting, you know, natural language processing, uh, where you get, you know, Siri or Alexa or whatever to work better for you. And so I think that's really the next 20 years, because, you know, for me, at least when I sit at my house, you know, we have, you know, 100 megabits or a gigabit at the house. I don't know that my life changes that much to get five gigs, right? We're, we're consuming all the content we want to. My kids are playing, you know, real time video games with their friends everywhere, right? So I don't know that that makes our lives much better. But I do think 
all the computational power and all the software and the algorithms that come with that, they can make our stuff much, much smarter. And, that, and that's the next 20 years. And so what does that mean from a data, uh, data center or a digital infrastructure perspective? It's just, it should be built differently. And so what we've had, it, it, and so when you're talking about computing power, that generally means a fair amount of electricity. It generally means a lot of heat. Um, and so that, you know, like for AWS or Azure, like that's sitting inside of their data center that's also doing data streaming and real-time operating environments. For us, we got a beachhead with um, with Bitcoin specifically, but in these same sites, you know, before the end of this year, we'll have other applications, a machine learning application at the site. We'll have some other Web3 stuff, but we have customers that we're already getting. And, and why is that? Well, at some of the sites specifically, um, we got a good power source because that's what we were searching for at the start, right? Low cost power. And I could talk about how we source that. We're generally in more remote areas, uh, but our data centers sit on fiber grids. So we'll run a little bit higher latency than these other data centers I'm talking about, but we can purpose build our data centers, which we're doing for uh, massive computing applications. And it will streamline and lower the cost. We think significantly lower the cost for these applications. And I think that's an elastic market. So if you can be a cost leader uh, and purpose build what I call homogenous data centers, right? Instead of these Swiss Army knife data centers. Um, I, I think that's what the next 20 plus years brings because I think that's the next big applications out there for technology. And so that that's what we're doing. And and we, you know, we, were, we were a little bit lucky in kind of how we came into it with Bitcoin, but we're taking that beachhead and then we're expanding it because we're going, look, we have ultra low cost sites that can do, you know, high performance computing. Bitcoin is one application for that, but I see a lot of very large applications out there and, and we're actually having a, a fair amount of success finding that. And I'm pretty excited about that next leg for us. Sounds very exciting. Uh, Wes, uh, let's talk about construction here, because if I think data center, I think Amazon Web Services, I think yeah. Microsoft Azure, you know, um, and these are like the two largest, you know, data center providers in the world. Yep. So, so I'm curious to unpack, like, how do you guys compete against someone like that? You know what I'm saying? Like, maybe yep. it is about the beachhead and that's what makes it different. But I'd love for you to uh, give our audience a sense as to how do you build digital infrastructure? So what's involved in that? How long does it take? What's the time to value? Um, and so uh, it's important because I think it's it's like, I'm very curious and I know our audience is as well. Like, how do you compete against big players in the data center space. Yeah, like so so that that that's a question I get all the time and it's a, it's a good one. But when when you're thinking about competing, I think for us it's all about carving this this niche out in high performance computing, right? And building our data centers, the entire data center specifically for high performance computing. And this is about stripping down. So like if you if you think about data centers, you have like uh, tier 1 through tier 4, right? Tier 4 is Generally, what you're seeing with AWS and, and uh, Azure and, and Google Cloud, uh, and these are you know ultra high and you know clean room style environments that are that are meant to never go down, right? Five nines plus reliability. So we're we're building it a little bit different than that. So we started like a tier one, and then we stripped pieces away to make it even less expensive because those data centers are very expensive, and we're just trying to run. Effectively, for most of these, you're running CPU, GPU, right? Like huge amounts of GPUs. Um, and, and you're thinking more like supercomputing, but we're, we're building the data center specifically for that. And then we we have some methods that we're you know I don't want to share just yet, but but we're 
we're very close to give that kind of redundancy without all of the cost. And, and it's, but it's only for the applications we're chasing. So it's all about carving out a niche for us um, in just computing, right? Because that, that's like a, just a piece that's added into the other data centers. And I think that can be done much more efficiently. And, you know, over the long run, I would expect competition, even from these big players that maybe build stuff that looks like ours. And I hope that happens because, you know, that, that means we, we, landed on a model that works um, because if, if you ever never get any competition, right, you, generally it's because you don't have a business model anyone else wants to have. So, um, so I think there will be that competition, but it's really specifically, you know, carving this niche out of building ultra low cost digital infrastructure. And so when I talk about, when you think, I keep saying digital infrastructure, but for the, for the data center side, you know, think of a building, whatever kind of building you want to imagine, you know, we we put all the racks in, we put, you know, all the airflow, all the cooling, whatever we need to do. And, and cooling and airflow is a big deal for for this one, um, this application, because it produces a lot of heat. And so we're doing all of that, all the electrical infrastructure, which is handled differently. Like the, these use more power than a traditional data center uses. We already have experience with that on the Bitcoin side. And then making sure you're in a place where you get, you know, really low cost electricity and so what are those places? What we have found those places to be is generally, you know, locating by or co-locating with uh, wind farms. And so these, you know, these, these wind assets were built, you know, a few years ago, anywhere between 20 years ago and two years ago. But, but generally, when people started building these wind assets, they put a map out, right? And they, they have the, the maps of where the wind blows the most. And then you go, okay, well, I'm going to put the wind asset here where the wind blows the most, which makes sense. But the problem with that is, is what it's created in some areas is grid congestion for the electricity. And so we're a solution to that where we go in and we pull that electricity off because like for a power gen, you can build it in 18 to 24 months, but maybe transmission capacity takes seven, 10, 12 years to build. So you can get this grid congestion. And so we're going into these places that have that. We can get really low cost electricity contracts and, and on top of that, we're using renewable energy and we, uh, we we up the return for the owners of the wind farm. And generally, these owners of the wind farm, it's not like they just built one and that's all they're going to do for the life of them. You know, they want to go and build more and they can build more, the better their return is. And so um, I think that's a good setup for us, just both from, a you know, an environmental perspective and, and green computing, which everyone is, you know, is pretty focused on now. And we, I could talk about, I, I think we'll build kind of the greenest computing out there. Um, for multiple reasons for for these applications, but but those are the those are the pieces. So you know you're building the building, doing all the things around that that you need to to make it operate, including power, but getting to a low cost power site, um, sitting where you're on you know good fiber grid, uh, all of these things. Um, but that that's really what's involved in the actual digital infrastructure itself, and and the way we approach it is is what gives us I think our competitive advantage. So Wes, um, how much infrastructure have you guys? put in market at the moment like if like what does the computing capability kind of look like and what is on your roadmap in terms of capability yeah so uh we have shortly to have so either running or under construction that will be up in the next few months we have about 500 megawatts of of capacity which is generally how we talk about it and and the vast majority of that basically all of it is going to to um running the bitcoin network and then we uh, really in the next few weeks, we'll have some, some GPU, CPU applications running. 
um, both for machine learning and for some other Web3 applications uh, that, that are, you know, we don't have to get into here a bit. But at the end of it, you know, so that, that that's a, actually a huge amount of capacity. But what you'll see us do going forward into next year is adding more and more uh, general high-performance compute capacity. And that, that'll really be the focus in 23 and 24 for the company. Uh, we, we spent a lot of 22, you know, really focused on building the capacity for the, for the Bitcoin, uh, operations. And while we were doing that, we were looking for these other applications and, and there's some, there's some pieces you have to get to come together to make those work. And then we've landed on a lot of that, which is, was really increased my excitement level for, for these other applications, these, these general high performance computing applications. Um, and, and you'll see us roll those out over the next six, 12 months in, in kind of a big way. So that's where we stand right now. And I've, I've said this publicly, but, you know, from, from just the 500 megawatts, that's mostly focused on Bitcoin coming online, that should get us to, uh, around a hundred million of, of, uh, annual profits for the company. So running, running about a hundred million of what we call adjusted EBITDA and for this business, that generally would be cash flow if we're not spending the cash to build new facilities. Um, so it gives us that really good, you know, cash platform to kind of expand into these other HPC operations. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's really interesting to consider uh, for a moment just of how fast technology uh, matures. So, like, I've got it up on screen for everybody. It was like the old, you know, like the first like computer where it's like the size of a warehouse and you've got people plugging in different cables and stuff. <laughs> um, and, you know, fast forward to today, we've got edge computing, supercomputing and things like that. Um, and it's interesting, right? Because there's, there's this Gartner hype cycle idea. It's like, where is it exactly? <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like blockchain, hype Bitcoin, and then it's kind of like the trough of uncertainty. And that's kind of where I would say that we are. Um, But I'd love for you to paint a picture because you're in this space. You're thinking about edge computing, supercomputing, all this kind of stuff, digital infrastructure. Um, Can you paint a picture for – and then nanocomputing is another one, right? So there's all these these terms out there. In terms of computing power, like how far away are we, Wes, would you say, uh, to truly having like nanocomputing or supercomputing? You know what I mean? Like, And what is the sort of future look like in terms of – uh, digital infrastructure capability. Yep. Like, what opportunities does this actually unlock for for businesses? Sure. So, I, I think from that perspective, like I, I've watched computing power improve. You know, you have Moore's law. You're kind of hitting the limits of Moore's law. But what you're seeing on computing power, the, the improvement from you know 2000 until now, it just it's mind boggling, right? You know, and everyone's talked about. You know, the amount of power in your phone is, you know, whatever it is, 100x the, the computing power they had to land land people on the moon or whatever that is, right? And so do you know how impressive it is now? And I think that's, you know, it's somewhat accelerating. We'll see there, there's some technologies in manufacturing of, of uh, semiconductors that can have kind of leaps and bounds effects that are coming into it. It took longer than than people expected, but like uh, EUV, which is uh, uh, extreme ultraviolet uh, lithography, right? They do etching with this and and it, it can make the lines and semiconductors extremely small, which creates um, really high efficiency uh, semis on, on smaller silicon. So there's stuff like that that's going on that's creating this amount of computing. And then, and then you have two pieces as you talked about, you know, you got edge, you got supercomputing, those are kind of, so we, we won't play with edge. 
Um, and so the edge is, is just basically so you can be much more lower latency, right? You're right on site. That's as low latency as you could get is basically trying to be close to close to where the, the power is used or the data is gathered or the data is used, whatever that might be. And then what, what we're really focused on is the aspect of, you know, really high efficiency utilization of massive computing power. So more back to like supercomputers. Um, you, the, the way to really utilize those really efficiently is for someone like, like us to build the infrastructure and then help with whoever wants to have the GPUs. Could be us, could be other people to put it inside the facility. But it's different people using that same pool of massive computing power so that you get the best efficiency out of it, right? Because, you know, if you're using a, a supercomputer like a, I don't know if about a government lab, I think they're running theirs, you know, almost all the time. But if someone has it in-house, they might run a batch and, you know, utilization might be 40, 50, 60 percent. Uh, so that makes a much higher cost, right? The, the lower the utilization, the higher the cost. But if we can put it in a pool that people can use um, from anywhere and just pay us for the pool, like on an, you know, an hourly rate, which is oftentimes how this is done. And we're not the only ones doing this, but, uh, you know, you can do this on AWS and Azure right now, but the, if you can pool that, you get much more efficiency so that, and the lower you can drive the cost curve, right? So the cost curve is going to go down from more efficient, uh, GPUs and CPUs, um, not, not just power efficiency, but, you know, from a computational, so more powerful from a computational perspective and less power consuming from a, from a cost perspective, that'll drive the curve down. And then the way we help drive the curve down is, is the infrastructure portion. And as you drive the curve down, I really believe this is an elastic market where you'll see more and more usage of these things. And I don't want people to think about like, you know, for, for me, like if I'm, you know, sitting in, in and talking to a lot of other people about it, when you think about consumers, you know, people think about consumer facing applications. So, you know, think about AI, machine learning, people are thinking about, you know, like a robot cleaning their house or something like that. Um, I, I don't think those are the applications that we're really shooting for here. More like autonomous driving, uh, I keep coming back. Nat natural language processing is just, it's a, it's a big, big application um, because it requires a massive amount of computing to, to do that. Um, and so you, you think about those, you think about factory automation, right? That I think that's a big one where you'll see, you know, when people think of robots, they're, again, they're thinking of things that look like, you know, R2D2 or something else, but, but a lot of the robots are, are here today, but they're in factories doing manufacturing. And so that, that really increases efficiency um, for that, but you can think about a ton of, you know, industrial, commercial, uh, manufacturing type type applications that that use this. And those, you know, one piece is is building the machinery, but like the the bigger piece is actually the intelligence that goes into it. And so, what you do for that is you generally will take, you know, three hundred billion data points, and then you do something called training the model. And so you take those and you use all this massive computing power and crunch those. And so some of these models that they train and then you, you know, and then you put the model back into kind of a real time operating environment or even local and whatever is making the decisions, right, uses this model to make the decisions. And so the training of the model is super computing intensive. And so a lot of times, you know, it just depends on the amount of amount of um, blocks required. But, you know, some people will take a model, and they'll, they'll get in queue to train it uh, and they'll wait for the capacity to open up and then they'll wait you know, three months for this, all the computing to be done. Like it's, it, it's, it is massive computing. And so if you think about autonomous driving, for example, right, you're constantly crunching all that data um, to make the model better. 
And then you upload that model back either into the car or some real-time operating environment the car uses to connect to to make decisions uh, that needs to be ultra low latency. But but those are the kind of things to think about. But I, I think you'll see those just happen more and more and more because the software is getting really sophisticated. And then you pair that with the computing power that the cost curve is coming down. And that's what we're going to help with is drive that cost curve down significantly. And the applications, I, I think, will be pretty amazing um, that come out of that. You know, both, both things that that actually recognize what you're asking for. You know, a lot of the, the, the stuff, the voice assistants we use now do pretty well. Um, but then, you know, much more decisions because, look, if you use a lot of times Siri or Alexa and you ask a complicated question, they'll just do a Google search, right? They just plug it into a Google search and then let you read whatever it is. Um, so you, but you would have a much more interactive experience is, is one thing that's consumer facing that you could see happen much, much more. Mm-hmm. And other consumer facing is autonomous driving for sure. Cool. Um, quick one. You mentioned uh, that you guys listed on the NASDAQ. So why did you choose that as a funding path for applied digital being an investor yourself you obviously know other investors why did you choose the public markets to uh to really fund a digital infrastructure yeah so so there there was a couple of pieces of that you know when i was looking around the landscape um i thought in the end you know you you probably have separation of two companies this is this is specifically in when we're much more focused on just the mining aspect right you'd have the companies that you know that have a public currency and then those that don't right and so the public currency just gives you more access to capital but it also is a way for you know when you're raising capital in private rounds if people see a, a really clear path to liquidity for that it's much easier to raise capital um and so we have that benefit you know now you know there's there's detriments and drawbacks to that which are you know, you have the quarterly reporting, you have all of that stuff that, you know, like costs that go along with that, like DNO insurance and things like that. But but we did choose that because you, I think you just have better access to capital uh, in those markets and it, and it helped us in the, in the private access to capital as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, just sticking with the investment side of things as well, like what would you say that process of uh, listing on the NASDAQ um, taught you or is there a perspective or an insight or a lesson that you feel other startup founders entrepreneurs should be aware of if they're thinking about using the public markets to fund their companies so it's one it's it's definitely a heavy lift right it was a lot of energy spent and you know money spent um to get to that point and get that completed you know it it was gratifying when it was done but you know behind the scenes it was it was very time consuming. Um, like I said, it, it required money. And then, uh, you know, it was, it was, it was very stressful. And then kind of how, you know, the, the other negative is like day to day, your stock trades. And so, you know, sometimes, especially if you're in small cap stock land, um, the stock goes up or it goes down and it could just be, there's, you know, a, a big seller or a big buyer and you have no reason why, and you'll get, you know, five calls to be like, why is your, why is your stock moving? You have no idea. Right. And so you can spend time on that. Um, so it, it is, it is that it is, you know, it's, I think it's, it can be gratifying at the end. Um, if your if your business goes well and you make the right decisions and you set yourself up for success, you know, it's, it's not, I, I will say this for people who think it's like a fast out from, you know, making money perspective for a founder, it is not right. I'm my, my shares are, are fairly locked up. Um, you know, I don't, I don't really get anything out of that monetarily for the time being. 
other than, you know, people get a look and see the number of shares I own and then do the math and then, you know, to show up on search sites and all that stuff. But the uh, uh, ge- generally, you know, there's, there's definitely pros and cons, but I would say for anyone who's a founder that's going that route, it's a heavy lift. It really is. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'd love to have a bit of fun with you for a moment, uh, Wes. So I'd love for you to, <clears throat> well, I'm going to give you the keys to the Matt Brown Show time machine. Um, and I'd love for you to go back to like day one. That could be applied blockchain or, you know, we call it applied digital, what have you, but day one. <laughs> so a lot of shit has gone down, man. You've gone, you've listed on the NASDAQ, you've uh, pivoted into digital infrastructure, so to speak. Um, what advice would you give yourself? If you could go back in time to day one, what yep. it, what's the, what would that piece of advice be? The the advice, you know, which I, I did a lot of this, but you can never do enough, is you know, I to stay for me, just stay focused on what I do really well, right? Stay focused on what I do really well and then surround myself with team members that do the other things really well, the things that I don't do well. Because, you know, I I've always, you know, made a joke to the people that I'm I'm an idea guy. Right. I'm an idea guy. I have ideas about you know things all the time. I'm not really the, the execution guy. I've gotten much better at that. But the thing that I have done really well from an execution standpoint is put people in the seats around me that do those things extraordinarily well. And, and that I could have spent more time doing that. Um, but the, the people, a, a big part, especially in small companies, the people you surround yourself with will be a big key to whether you're successful or not successful, right? No matter how good an idea is, no matter how smart, you know, the founder or the CEO is, if you don't put all the other people in place, it's going to be really hard to be successful. Um, we, I was lucky to get uh, some people that were a really good team, but, but it was, it was kind of a, it was like a running start. And so you, you know, we're a lot of, I call it like built, you know, building the airplane while we we're flying it. Um, but it's, it's something that you know I could have definitely spent more time on in, in the front end of this, but luckily for for me, I've, you know I wouldn't change the people uh, that I have, and we've got you know everyone is incentivized with equity in the company, and everyone works really hard and a lot of long hours, but but um, they're also really smart and they're very good at specifically what they do. They're really good at that, and so that, that's my number one advice to myself or someone else, right? That that's doing that. You, know, you you can't do it all yourself, no matter how smart you think you are. You can't do it all yourself. No, not, not even how smart you think you are. I said that wrong. Just no matter how smart you are, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you, you definitely need help around. Yeah. No entrepreneur is an island. Yeah. <laughs> you can, you like, it's nice to think that you are, but actually in reality, you're not. So, yes. yep. yep. So, I mean, um, I'd love to talk to you quickly about failure. What would you say has been the biggest failure, quote unquote, um, in the building of applied digital um, and what did you learn from it? Sure. So the, the, I mean, you're the other piece of this is you're going to, no matter what business you get into, I mean, I, I, I would love to read the book of the business that never had any setbacks, right. As they went from zero to how big they went, because that, that would, that would be like a, a Disney fairy tale story, but the, you know, you're going to have setbacks. Our, our biggest setback honestly came really early on, but then it turned into quickly our biggest opportunity. I mean, when when we were going to do all GPU-based, you know, computing and mining, we'd lined everything up with all these partners, you know, it was going to be a really small scale operation. And then this was all going to be done in facilities in China. And then all of a sudden you're just done, 
right? That one day comes out, it was on a Friday, I'll, I'll never forget. And I see the news headlines going across. And then I'm talking to my partners who are, you know, generally asleep, you know, on the other side of the world. And I was like, we're, you know, we're dead. We were, we're two months into this and we're dead. And uh, so, you know, I spent the weekend talking about that. And the biggest part was, you know, we have this big shipment of GPUs that were going to be deployed in the Sichuan province in China. They were sitting in Shenzhen and they were going to be deployed. And luckily they hadn't went out yet. And so spending time talking to our partners about, you know, should we or shouldn't we? And I wasn't, you know, I wasn't getting like a strong opinion back because, you know, China's cracked down many times in the past and I wasn't getting a strong opinion. Well, Sunday night rolls around and they start asking me about hosting capacity in, in the US. And I go, okay, well, I have my answer on whether I'm, you know, deploying those GPUs or not. And so we repurposed or we we redirected uh, those GPUs. They went to a facility in Messina, New York, where we started mining with them there. And then we started down the path of of building the data center. But that, you know, that was a it was kind of a big lift for us. It was something that I, you know, I had never done. My partners had never done. Luckily, we found some people we'd already been talking to about a site in Texas, and uh, so we found a guy who does power extremely well. We found a guy who uh, had. There was only a few of these facilities operating in the U.S. We found a guy who was one of the first guys at at a company called Mineco, that is now called Core Core Scientific, that he had built a few of these facilities before. So we found him and brought them online. And then we found a, another power engineer that had, you know, been the engineer on, I think, five before we, we brought him on board. So we went out and found all these people, but it was it was it was a daunting task, to say the least, right? You you totally change your business model. You have all of these guys who just put money into the company going, what you know, what are you gonna do? And so it was it was definitely a really tough spot, but we came out of that with i think a much better business model for the long term than, than we had going into it but it was at the, at the time it was a huge setback i mean it was you know my you know heart absolutely sank and, and i was like uh, well, like what are we going to do and it took a, a short amount of time to figure that out but but it was uh it was definitely pretty scary and then you know outside of that like a lot of what we have done is is you know construction and putting things online um and getting you know regulatory approval has been a big hurdle uh the first facility it wasn't but, but the second facility has been more of a hurdle for us um you know those are things that are you know they're not they're not traps to fall into they're just things that you have to work through and the, the things that frustrate me the most are things that i can't control right i mm -hmm. i love to to be able to like fix things and I'm, I'm a problem solver. And then some of these things you get into like the regulatory aspect, like a lot of it's out of your hands, you know, you, you can't force these things through. Um, but, but th those have been, I would say frustrations, but the, the biggest one was like, you know, you kind of had like this existential crisis for, for a little bit on when your business model was completely blown up um, by, by a decision from the, from the government in China and then, and, you know, kind of repurposing from there and totally pivoting. So that was, that was the biggest one, but it came out, it, it turned out really well. Mm. It's, um, it's, I, I hear you. I actually think that that's the most frustrating thing. Cause like when you, when you basically, let's just say you fuck up, like you make a mistake, um, that's, that's easier to take cause you did it. But when something happens like COVID or a pandemic or a regulation or some kind of central authority and they go, no, you can't do that. Yep. It's out of your control. Like that's the stuff that wrecks you, my head. You know what I mean? Yep. Like yep, it is, it, it is. And it's, it's, it's really, 
it it's hard for someone who's just about like you know making things happen and my, and my whole team's about that but i really am about that when you get in a position where it's completely out of your hands right and it could be you know a regulatory a political decision uh but for a lot of people the pandemic right was it, it was really tough you know if i were a restaurant owner and they came in at the start of the pandemic and was like you're shut down like that that would be extremely frustrating with with what you could do and and, and by the way and I didn't know that we could swear on the show because you you would have got a completely different interview from me if I were. <laughs> well, you know, a couple of f bombs here and there doesn't hurt anyone. <laughs> you know what I mean? If you don't like it, go listen to another show. <laughs> yeah, I should have set that up. <clears throat> you could just make it a swear fest. No, but yeah. on a, <laughs> it's funny. I was had, I was having a, a chat to a couple of entrepreneur buddies of mine yesterday. So I really want to do this show and love for you guys to to drop me a mail. Uh, or tweet me or something on social media, whatever. But like to do a series called like fuck up nights. Yes. You know, where it's literally you pitch up, here's your mic. Tell me what the, what the issue was, you know? And like, cause I think it's, it's so, it's such a cool idea because, or at least from, at least from what my, my perspective also what people are saying, because there's this weird like perspective, right? Like to your point, it's like everyone's successful. Like if you go to TechCrunch, it's like, look at all these companies raising money. Um, And of course, you know, they went from zero to hero in six months, hockey stick curve, no problems. (laughs) Meanwhile, behind the curtain, there's actually like, that's the issue, right? We're constantly making mistakes, isn't, aren't we? Um, And I suppose like if we're not making those mistakes, if we're not going through some level of pain, uh, then you know we we don't grow and we like to your point, like if you hadn't if that you know if the China government hadn't like literally caused you guys to stop, you wouldn't have been forced to pivot. Do you know what I mean? So actually, in in hindsight, it you know the universe quote unquote you know was yeah. it was it, it was happening for you, not to you. Do you know what I mean? And I yeah. think like we like to think, oh shit, it's always happening to me. And it's, but it actually, if you if you if you look up and you see what the new opportunity is. Like, I believe there's always an, another move. You know what I mean? Yeah. There's, there's always another one there. I think they're almost, I'll say almost always is, but in, in a, in a 99% of the times, I think there are, I'm sure people get in positions. That I don't know. I was, so I don't go to hundred is I'm sure there's positions where there's not, you know, and I just don't know what that is, but, but there is, I mean, for us, it, the, the story is much better to tell now. Like if the story was, well, and then we went out of business, right? That's, that's not a great story, but, uh, but it did create what, you know, what I'm looking at now going, this is a significantly better business opportunity and better business for my company to be in than what we would have been if we just kind of went down the path of deploying GPUs in China. Uh, and so uh, I'm, I'm grateful it happened again at the, at the time, those, it was definitely a, it was, a, it was a rough moment. And then it's, it was also the first of, uh, you know, like you, you, you build all this team around and my team is great. And then, but, but at the end of it, you know, if that doesn't work out, the, 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 all the people, the investors that put money in to make this happen, they're not going, you know, they're not going out and finding the team. They're going to, it's you, right? What, what, mm-hmm. what went on? What's going on? What are you going to do? And so you do get that kind of isolation aspect of it, but um and so that's not really that very fun. Um, but, but yeah, it's, it, I, I agree with you, but it's, the, you know, I'm, I'm glad in retrospect that that happened, but it wasn't fun going through it. Mm. Well, I think you're in a place to be honest. I think, I mean, I don't know what you know, but just on the face of it, from what you've said today, I think you're in a better place 
quite frankly, than if you were doing Bitcoin mining. Because yeah. I think like the like uh, I'm to be quite honest, like I'm very disillusioned still about what Web three is. And when is it going to be here? You know what I mean? Because yeah. it's kind of like we're almost 20 years too early, you know, or maybe 10 or maybe five, who knows. Yeah. Um, but I think in the where, where you are now, like that you can you can scale quickly now. Like you don't need to wait for adoption to happen. Yeah, I mean, look, like machine learning, which will be our first big kind of general HPC application that our site, you know, is going through that market. And it's like a $35 billion market right now and growing fast. And I think... If you can bring that cost curve down, I, I think it's a really elastic market. So mm. um, I'm excited about that. Web, Web3, you know, we're doing some stuff there outside of just the, the Bitcoin piece. You know, there's some some really interesting things that are going on, some really interesting projects, a lot of money flowing into that space. Um, but, but you're right. It's kind of you're still looking for that good product market fit in Web3. Like people are throwing a lot of stuff at the wall. The, the thing that I will say about that for us, for our business model is almost all of those applications, because of how it's built on blockchain and, and the transactions people are doing and the security it requires, they all require a lot of computing power. And so when you think about us, like we're building the infrastructure for that. And whether it's Web3, whether it's machine learning, whether it's AI, you know, a lot of the computing power is very similar. It's like, you know, GPU, CPU based, mostly GPU based. But, but if you think about, you know, kind of portable computing power, that, that's really what we want to provide, right? Is we want to provide the underpinnings for that. We don't have to be the guys that own the GPUs. We want to run the data centers. But, but you're really thinking about portable computing power because these things, you know, they kind of work for a lot of these applications. A lot of the stuff that worked for Web3 works for machine learning and vice versa. And so, um, you know, it's just the application you're running. So you go, okay, I'm going to do machine learning for, you know, for, for this network, for this application. And then, you know, if that gets saturated, there's another one to do it for. Uh, but but it is interesting. Like we're making the bet that Web3 will happen in a big way, but not specifically what application will happen, right? Mm. Just we're going to provide the power to make it work. That's smart. I like that. And on that, <laughs> I really like that. Um, and uh, on that bombshell, it's time to end. Wes, uh, it's been a privilege uh, having you on the show, dude. We must get you back and we'll do like a, a fuck up series. For, get you right, back right. I think it'll be really interesting in, a, in another few months to see what we've done. But, but yeah. Matt, I really appreciate the time. Thanks for having me. Anytime. Thanks, everybody. Ciao, ciao. Ever wanted to become a best-selling author? Well, I'm in the influence business and I work with business owners and CEOs and business leaders to help them scale their influence. And we do this as a team by helping you to become a best-selling author, sought-after speaker and industry influencer in only 30 days. My team and I have developed a system that delivers a best-selling book and a launch campaign 300% faster and 50% less cost than anyone else in North America. This system is incredibly efficient. One of my clients haiku went from a two percent share of voice globally to an 11 percent share of voice globally in only seven days if you'd like more information head on over to showworksmedia.com for more that is showworks with an x.com